The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You know the show, you're listening to Rayella Sports on the Voice America Network. I'm in Phoenix, living like it matters. And what matters to me today? Wow, let me think about that. You know, I've had a long time. I've, had, I've actually had a week to think about that. And I'll tell you what matters to me. Practice. That's right, practice. I think I want to talk about practice a little bit because Philadelphia did the right thing. And the Philadelphia 76ers honored, acknowledged, embraced, uh, showed compassion, uh, a level of respect for Allen Iverson. And, and I, I just, man, I am just so happy and pleased that they did the right thing. Because Allen Iverson, uh, Philadelphia is a blue-collar town. Uh, Allen Iverson is too much of a superstar, I will say this, though. Allen is too much of a superstar to be really be considered blue collar. The man was great at what he did, did it better than anybody ever. If you ever take a point guard at the position of which is probably probably the most significant position on the basketball court because most of the times the point guard always has the ball. Well, the great majority of the time, he has the ball in his hands. It all starts with him. Somebody takes the ball out and throws it to him. If they get a rebound, they want to push the ball up the court, they're supposed to find the point guard and give the ball to him. He then is to execute the play, whatever that might be, take a shot, pass it, you know, set up a play, call the play, the communication from the coach, from the coach to him, Allen Iverson, AI, one of the greatest of, of all times to play the game. So I'm, I'm not going to call Allen Iverson a blue-collar person or athlete. Allen Iverson is a superstar of superstars, a man much bigger than his size, particularly on the basketball court. And, and then you also got to, if we want to acknowledge it or not, Allen also, you know, he kind of forced and put something in the face of individuals that they weren't ready for. Allen Iverson helped a lot of parents deal with their children as they were, they were going through adolescence. And their children was maybe perhaps maybe trying to be something that their parents didn't want them to be. But it was, it was, it was, a, it was kind of a, a, it was a culture change. That your kids were not going to be what you were going to be. I, I would think that the last time there was something that was so much in your face, 
is I would say, you know, probably in the 60s and, you know, probably in the 60s, you know, when there was a lot of rock and roll and, and, and the Beatles were hot and, 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 and there were just some kids that, you know, I remember the Kent State things back in 60s, in the late 60s, the Kent State shootings because kids were being rebellious and their parents had an idea of how they wanted their children to be, but their parents had a whole different idea of this is what I'm going to be. And I'm going to rebel against you and I'm not going to stand up for those bullshit things that you stood up for. I don't believe in what you believed in. I want to do things. I want to be me. I want to be free. You know, <laughs> I, I think that's a sign of family song, stone song from back in the day. But they just wanted to have it their own way and do it their own way and just be kids. And I think that's what Alan kind of represented, that, that whole hip-hop thing. And, I, you know, I was just a young kid myself. Now, now that I'm 54, I know that I was a kid back then. And, and we kind of wanted to do things differently and weren't willing to accept everything just as status quo. It's like, okay, it's our turn now. Let us do things a little bit different. And that doesn't mean we're going to go out and, you know, and do crazy things. We're still educated people. We just want to do it a little different. Education looks different now than it did when you did. Remember how education looked at Kent, Ohio, at Kent State University? Long hair, big afros, beards, mustaches, many skirts, you know, you know all kind of things look different. Cigarettes, weed, beer, a, a lot of stuff just looked different. But they still made a strong impact on society. And I think that's what Alan did. Alan really just, he kind of rebelled about, okay, we don't want to do it that way. We'll do the same things, but we're going to do things a little bit different. And I'll tell you, some people who do things different too, besides just on the basketball court, but they're, they're, they're people and, and, and they're great human beings. I'll say that first. But in the world of football, Kickers and punters do things different. I just don't know what it is. They're just wired a little bit different. But they're, they're good at what they do. And we have, we, have to, we have to accept that because they just want to do things different sometimes. And I was, I was blessed. I was on my way to church, and I, I ran into a, you know, a punter. And, and I just I couldn't believe there were so many things that we had in common uh, that I had to get his name. I had to get his number, and I had to, I had, I had to have him on the show today. And so as I was about to go into church— uh, Man, by the way, who happened to first experience in the National Football League was very similar to mine in the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. We're talking about Allen Iverson. Uh, I don't know if things, I don't think things quite worked out for him there, so he moved on. But at some point in time, he also spent time in the same place that I did, and that is the mistake on the lake, the city of Cleveland, uh, which I love. I mean, man, you can't get me to say anything real bad about Cleveland at all. Um, but... The fact that there's something that's a little bit different and I always want to have a long discussion with some people. And, I, and if you're interested, you can call in with me, talk with me, join the show, 888-346-9144. But I'm going to welcome, uh, I'm going to call him my friend already. We got so many things in, comic, uh, in common, and that's uh, Derek Frost. Derek, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I, I don't know if you heard all those, uh, those things I said about you and punters and kickers, but I've always enjoyed uh, being around punters and, and, and kickers and, and, and people sometimes don't understand. They, they seem to be different, particularly different when you talk about football field. Uh, because, you know, uh, some of the things that the other people who are associated with the game of football, some of the things that they do with some of their personalities 
I think punters and kickers are like completely different. I was, when I played for the Philadelphia Eagles, we had a, a, a punter who was with us the majority of the time, Max Runniger. Then we got another punter came in by the name of Mike Horan. Mike was one of the greatest punters, I think, in the National Football League for a long time. He was a left-footed punter and uh, had a big, big leg. I mean, balls high, long, great directional kicker. And, uh, and then we had uh, well punter. And then we had a kicker named, started off with a guy named Tony Franklin in Philadelphia. And, and Tony, ooh, ooh, personality, Tony. <laughs> That's what, Tony was just a man of his, uh, you know, in his own world. And, and then we inherited a guy who was from Youngstown State. And uh, I, I just love the man, Paul McFadden. Uh, Paul was a, a, a small-framed guy. I never forget one time Paul got hit one time, and he just he had no clue where he was at. Oh man, he's, he said he said he got the snot knocked out of him, you know. But uh, Paul, one of my great dear friends back there at Youngstown State, I think he's the assistant athletic director, or maybe the athletic director at Youngstown State. Of course, Ron Jaworski is uh, an alum of that university, and also one of my good friends, Johnny Good, who also played with me from uh, yeah. I, um, you know, it's funny you were saying earlier. It's almost like divine intervention. We're sitting there in the uh, the church parking lot and uh, ran into you, and. Uh, you know, City of Brotherly Love, I guess, was not quite as much love my way because I only lasted two days there, uh, believe it or not. But um, ended up playing my first real regular season games in um, in Cleveland. But punting and kicking is a, definitely a funny space, and uh, a lot of a lot of interesting personalities. It's kind of like an old ladies' group of bridge players. Um, you know, everybody's very close, but you know, they they tend to get you know very competitive with each other because just like you saw the other day. Um, it's a very rare position in, in the NFL where guys go head-to-head against each other. I mean, literally head-to-head. So it's not like a offensive lineman going against a defensive lineman or, um, you know, a corner going against the safety. It's, it's head-to-head, uh, you know, kick-to-kick. And it creates a very different competitive environment, um, not only in football but in pro sports. It's pretty unique. And that's really what we were doing on the field um, the other day. Well, you know, that's interesting that you would say that, 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 it's, that it's head-to-head. And, uh, you know, for, let's say, another player looking at it, you know, it's really not that much difference because when you go one-on-one, I'm not going against the same defensive back. I'm going against a wide receiver, but he gets up, he guards a wide receiver one-on-one. I'm, I'm a safety, I'm a corner, whatever. He does it, and then right after he does it, you know, I get a chance to do it. And, and, and what, you're, what you always know, you always know what he did and what you did. And, and you, what you have to do is that last one, you're aware of it, but it was the last one, and then you know that you're going to get another chance. So there's consistency that is extremely important in what we do is guarding people, and uh, you know, in our in our one-on-one drills. And what you do, of course, is is your kicks. It, which you, I'm sure you want distance, you want height, and you want accuracy in the event that they tell you to kick it outside the numbers or a certain part on the field. How how soon is it as as a punter do you start worrying or get concerned about? How high, how far, and what direction that you kick the ball in? How how soon do you guys start concentrating on that stuff? That's that's the interesting part is, you know, the measurables. I mean, you're you're going to go toe to toe with guys, and the measurables are as evident as um, you know. What's what's the number one thing they talk about at the combine? Right, the forty time. Right, and they they put they put ghost images of uh, of you know. Uh, 
I guess, host, you know, talking about how fast they could run it, and then they, they put it against Clowney, and they show how slow everybody is. And th- the reason why people get excited about that is because it's measurable, right? It's, it's head-to-head measurables. And with kicking and punting, it's, it's, you know, it's that every single day. The main difference is, and this is where guys kind of craft their their career and really are real true um you know, professionals, they're, they're, they have their mental aspect is to realize, hey, maybe I don't hit the ball as high as that guy or even as far, but how can I do what I do best? How can I make what I do a little different? And that's really where I crafted my wedge into the league was I didn't have the hugest leg, but I was an athlete, and I could move the ball to the sideline, and I could, you know, I was good at getting the ball inside the 20. And I also made sure that guys didn't run the ball back on me, which some guys don't do. But I knew those were the things I had to do to be successful. I wasn't a guy who was just going to be able to kick the ball down the field, down the middle, and allow you know teams to return the ball. I didn't hit enough hang time. But um, there are guys that do that. But everyone's got to know you know to make it. Everyone's got to know what they do best and really perfect that part of their craft. Um, and that that becomes important. Now with kicking, you know, field goals and things like that, it's a little bit different because it's really just about making the kick. Um, you know, some guys might get the ball up a little quicker. Some guys may need to work on that so they don't get blocked. But um, really the main determinant there is, is do they make the kicks? Do they make them under pressure? And, and do they kick off well? Um, so it's a little, bit, a little bit different, I think, on the punting because guys can really craft their game a little bit more on the punting side. Uh, and, and let me ask you something. You, you mentioned a couple of things there of which uh, I think there's a d- clear distinction between a punter and a kicker. Uh, who do you think has the most pressure? You've played the position, I'm sure, per, probably at some point in time when you were younger, maybe you might even have kicked off and maybe kicked field goals. Which of those two are the most pressure in your mind, those positions? I think, I think being a kicker. I mean, it, you know, the, the kick before the end, you know, before, right when the game's coming down to the wire, uh, that's, you know, that's as, as big as it gets uh, with no time left on the clock. And that's, that's feast or famine for guys. That's how you make a career or, or, or lose a career by making or missing those kicks. And uh, you see a guy like Vinatieri, um, you know, he's made, I mean, that string of kicks he made uh, starting in the snow. If you remember that game where they you know, had to brush the snow off, uh, I think it was against the Raiders. And that really kind of started the lore of, of his career. He was a good kicker before that, but, he, you know, he wasn't, you know, talked about like he was after that. And those are some of the things that happen. I mean, being a punter, you know, you're backed up in the end zone. That's, that's difficult. Um, but, you know, you can hit a bad ball and it can roll on the ground and still work out. You know, you hit a bad ball as a kicker, it's not going in. I mean, it's either in or it's not. And it's, um, that's just the way it is. So, well, I'll tell no you what, I... well, it was a decent hit, but, you know, it went out of bounds at the 40. We can deal with it. No, it's either in or it's not. And that's where I think the real pressure comes in for those guys. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I got a little perspective on that. But what we're going to have to do, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back. I, I want to thank everybody for listening because I know you're listening. If you want to call, give us a call. We, we got a unique show today. I actually have a punter from the National Football League on the show with me today. That is Derek Frost. And I appreciate the fact that Derek spent some time in Philadelphia and a little bit more time in Cleveland. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Ray Ellis Sports on the Voice America Network. I'm in Phoenix living like it matters and we'll be right back. A beauty. It's a fly ball deep right field. That goes O'Neal. He's a tough shot 
got it with 2.8 seconds left to left. I don't care where they put him. This one is out of here. From high school to the pros, we, we cover everything. Let your voice be heard. Voice America Sports. So Andy Serling packed his bags, left the city, and is enjoying his temporary digs in Saratoga. But that won't stop us from bringing you Playing to Win, the best online handicapping show for serious horse players. Catch Andy and his great lineup of guests every week throughout the month of August on location from the beautiful Saratoga Racecourse. He and his guests are some of the best in the biz. They bring you new insights to making money, and they tell it like it is. I'm 3-5-1 in this race, but the three is very much the one to be. We're going to completely disagree on this race. I absolutely disagree. Spicer, especially at one to two. And it's anything but the same old horse racing show. This is a nine horse field, but really there are seven donkeys and two zebras. Playing to win with Andy Serling, a show seriously committed to making more money at the game, but with a personality. This is a dunce cap horse for me. If this horse wins, next week I got the dunce cap on. YouBet.com's Playing to Win, presented by the Daily Racing Forum. Look for it the day before big race days, mostly Fridays. Find a complete schedule in the Daily Racing Forum or click on Playing to Win at YouBet.com. You may not know all their names, but you certainly know what they did. They helped make this game into what it is today. Now we can do more to help them. The NFL Alumni Association is proud to assist our retired players to help make their lives better today and tomorrow. To learn more, please visit NFLalumni.org. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. All right, we're back. You hear the music, you know the show. You listen to Rail of Sports on the Voice America Network. I'm in Phoenix, living like it matters. And uh, I said before we went to that break there, I, I, I had a little story of my own and my experiences uh, with a kicker and a punter. It was only one time in my life that I really remember. Well, I guess there's got to be two because one of them was very significant in my life. And that obviously was what we call the drive there in uh, in Cleveland and around the world is known. I still don't think that field goal was was good that actually won the game. Uh, and I was the safety. So I was the last guy there. I was other than the referees, uh, you know, and I'm not sure they knew what the hell they were doing. But but what can I say? They called it good, so it was good. Game's over. Okay, now, besides that, I remember experience. We were playing the Miami Dolphins down in Miami, Florida. Saw a great shout-out to my high school camp, McKinley Bulldogs. We're going uh, on their way to being undefeated, 13-0. and 0, They ended up being, and uh, I look up in the stands, and I see a, uh, a sign that says that uh, they were undefeated, and I was happy about that. But then a couple years later, I came back to Miami, Oh, man, this is a hard story. <laughs> they were undefeated. The Dolphins were undefeated at that time. Paul McFadden was our kicker. We had a chance to tie the game up, I believe. And Mac missed an extra point. Is it that difficult in your mind, Derek, for a, you know, a kicker to trot out on the field and kick an extra point in an NFL game? Is it that much pressure that it's an undefeated team. They're six and zero. You know, you, we maybe won. Uh, we had a couple games, or maybe we were three and two at that time, uh, or maybe three and three at that time, something of that nature. But we had a chance to, you know, hey, it's Dan Marino, Miami Dolphins. They're undefeated. We got a chance to upset them. 
is do the kickers really feel that much pressure? A punter, when, you know, the game's on the line, the ball's backed up in your end zone, all you got to do is just get the punt off. Are you guys feeling that much pressure during that time? Do you really feel the pressure? Yeah, I think guys do. Um, but I also think sometimes things just go wrong in, in the kicking and punting space. And, there, you know, there may not be always a reason for it. Sometimes it just happened at the right time or the wrong time. Um, you know, I look back at the Tony Romo situation that, you know, I think people would look at Tony Romo very differently if he wouldn't have dropped that hold um, in that playoff game. Or I don't know if it was a playoff game or was to go to the playoffs, but, you know, they, they were talking about how the ball was slick and all this, but yet everyone else was catching the same ball all year round. Yeah, Tony's thrown um, some interceptions is, since then, too, though. It's not just that, that one. He's thrown some yeah. interceptions at the wrong I, time know, since then, I look then at that too. as a situation where I say, all right, here's a guy who's, you know, it's a specialist position, uh, you know, holding, and people make it look very easy all day. Well, that guy gets practiced 50 to 100 times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened there was probably – uh, you know, I, you, you just you try to figure these things out. I don't think it's pressure. I think it's, you know, that he became the starting quarterback midway through the year, and his holding probably took a back seat to that, and these things didn't happen. My point is, is we always look for reasons, and yeah, there is pressure, but I don't know if it's always the case. Sometimes things just happen. Um, you know, a, a bad snap, a bad hold, uh, you just take off wrong on on a kick. Um, you know, those things happen. But the key to it is really to approach every situation as the same and the guys that are the guys that are really good and really um, come through in a clutch they tend to feel more the same in every situation and that's that's really the key yeah you know Um, to me I think it's a little you know I, I think when I look at what kickers and punters have to do you know, there are times in, in baseball and in basketball you find, and I guess in, in hockey, maybe the penalty shots or something, where you can actually find yourself in a, in a situation where it's all on you. You know, a lot of times when you line up in on the defensive side or the offensive side of the ball, you know, people on your team may know if it's an offensive play, let's say, that you're going to get the ball. Or if it's a pass play, you, you know, even on a pass play, you know, <clears throat> you may have your primary receiver, then your second, third, you know, check off and things of that nature. But you don't necessarily know that you're going to get the ball other than the quarterback and the center. Everybody else is just, you know, there's a chance. And if you're on the defensive side of the ball and it's the last play or something like that, there's a chance that the play may come your way, but you're, you don't know that. But I, but I would have to say that, that's a different kind of pressure than what we may be aware of. And the pressure is only just, it's just the fact that, okay, you just don't want to be the one who, who, who loses the game. If we, we as players will say, we, we will embrace that. We made a mistake that costs us the game. Sure, the game should have never been tied up in the first half and all that BS, but the reality of it is we accept the blame. So I, I would say that that's a different kind of pressure. You know, that, that one snap, you know, that one time of the game where get this and it's over with, we know if you drop this ball in the end zone, we're going to lose the game. You know, we know that if they block your punt, you know, we're going to lose the game. We know if you don't make this field goal, you know, the game is over with. So I think that is a different kind of pressure. So it's for, for that, I will say that that does make it unique. And, and I think it takes a certain, you know, mental strength that uh, obviously you guys have. I think all players have it. Uh, but, but there is a unique. Uh, kind of strength that I think you guys must have mentally when it comes to that. But speaking of that, there were a lot of you guys that were out there, uh, you guys meaning punters, kickers, long snappers that were there. Um, 
here in Gilbert, Arizona this past Sunday. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about what was going on here in Gilbert, Arizona that probably most of the world didn't know anything about. It wasn't like it was a combine that was on television. Right. So um, Gary Zahner is a former special teams coach in the NFL. I'm not sure exactly how long, but I want to say over 16 years. Um, he's He's been with you know, quite a few different teams. And in my opinion, I think he's considered um, the authority on professional punting and kicking at the professional level. And um, he's got a very long track record, I think, to, to, to make that claim. Where he's found a, a kind of a niche um, lately, and that's what we were doing out there, is uh, the NFL Combine only invites about 10 kickers and punters combined. So on average, you're going to get five kickers and five punters, and you might get one long snapper. Okay, and it's really not a it's really not a system that's designed very well to evaluate that type of talent. It's really designed to do what most people are used to seeing it catching passes, running forties. I mean, you know, people can joke about what the kickers run in their forty, and maybe every once in a while a guy will surprise somebody or maybe throw up twenty plus on the bench. But at the end of the day, it's not the reason why they have the combine for kickers, right? So Gary saw a need there. Um, he doesn't coach you know at the pro level anymore probably had opportunities and turned him down. He's kind of in a, a different role, um, a different phase of his, of his life here with really just being a mentor to these guys and um, evaluating talent from a different perspective. So he's, he has a college combine, and that's what, that's what you saw, where it's college players who are not invited to the combine. And last year, you know, he produced out of there, I want to say, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty close here. I think about seven guys signed, signed on the team, and I think three or four uh, played in the regular season. One actually got drafted. So uh, the, the reason why it's, it's close to my heart is because Gary kind of discovered me. I was an unknown player out of northern Iowa. I didn't have a single agent call me. My dad, I hired my dad. Uh, I put together a game tape, and I had my dad send it to every team in the NFL and call them and follow up with them. And by the time I was, uh, came to the draft, I, I wasn't drafted, but I went from an unknown player that didn't have an agent call him to having nine free agent offers um, after the draft. And what, what happened in between there was I had, you know, I had a pro day like every other, you know, a lot of other players do, but only one special teams coach came to work me out in the NFL, and that was Gary's honor. And at that time, he was with the Baltimore Ravens. But Gary wanted me to come there bad, but they had just drafted a punter the year before. So it wasn't like... Uh, you know, he knew the scenario, but with him, it was more like, hey, look, you know, sign with us and uh, let me work with you. And, you know, you're probably not going to be here because we drafted a guy, but I'll work with you and I'll, you know, I'll work to try to find a spot for you. Well, the, the team didn't make me a really great offer. And so I ended up choosing Philadelphia, which I guess was a mistake because, like I told you before, I lasted there two days. And um, long story long, is I actually ended up playing for Baltimore just in the preseason. Gary ended up claiming me off waivers. And, um, you know, the interesting thing there was their punter got injured. And I took all the reps in the preseason. Now, they ended up cutting me, uh, which is funny. That's kind of his joke that he tells guys, yeah, this is the guy I cut. But um, Gary did uh, wonders for me. He's one of the very few people, I think, in life that um, individuals meet and come in contact with that have a profound effect on their the rest of their life. And, um, you know, so that's why, you know, I, I'm a big believer in what he does and his ability to evaluate talent. And that's what he was doing down there is really finding guys that deserve a little bit more, um, you know, publicity, but also uh, information to be spread about them and how good they are, what they're doing to give them the best chance to really uh, survive this business. 
Well, I, I, I certainly can um, kind of when I when I think about your story, it certainly kind of resonates with, not only with me. I would think with a lot of professional athletes because if if you listen to a lot of professional athletes. Uh, over the years, they will tell you that there was somebody that was special in their life that had something to do with coaching that believed in them. It, it certainly happened to me when I was very young in high school. I, I had a coach that who basically said to me, don't worry about the head coach. Uh, he was my this guy was my position coach. I'll take care of him. You, you just listen to me and, and follow my instructions. And 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 things worked out for me. I mean, that's just, it happens like that. And, and many times. People that you talk to who've played this game for a number of years will tell you that there was somebody that's very instrumental in their life that took some additional time with them and was patient with them because because they saw that potential there and they knew that you perhaps maybe had that work ethic and, and, and you had the discipline that it took to really you know hone in on that skill set and, and obviously it worked out for you but uh, I know you're a little hard on Philadelphia but one thing you can never forget is that's where you got that start at and that's that's one thing I think is extremely well, important. Well yeah and that you know the interesting part about that was what was the connection there it was Harbaugh who was the special teams coach who's now the coach in Baltimore head coach in Baltimore he was the special teams coach there the connection there was um, I played against his dad at Western Illinois or Western Kentucky. Western Kentucky was one double A, and I had some great games against them. And he would call me, and um, you know he would you know um, you know tell me that you know talk to me about you know just kind of interview me, talk, talk to me about these things, and they they seemed very interested in me. And I, I think they were. I think what happened in Philly was that was the year. It was I want to say it was two thousand three. That was the year after they went to the NFC Championship game, I believe. Um, or was it the Super Bowl where they lost? And they had looked as if they were a team that had no holes. Everyone was returning, other than their punting position, where they had two guys with no NFL experience, and I was one. And the media just ran wild with it. They just killed them. And um, they had to make a change. So you know, I was the younger guy, and I think that's kind of what happened there. But uh, I got no hard feelings. You know, Jeff, let me, let me tell you a, a, real, a real classy story here. Jeff Laurie, the owner. Hey, why don't we do this? we got to take a break, Derek. What we're going to do, we're going to take this break. We're going to come back, and you're going to tell us a story about a man that I know, <laughs> Jeffrey Lloyd, the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles. You're listening to Ray Ellis Sports on the Voice America Network. I'm in Phoenix, living like it matters. We're going to take a, a break, and we'll be right back. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. So Andy Serling packed his bags, left the city, and is enjoying his temporary digs in Saratoga. But that won't stop us from bringing you Playing to Win, the best online handicapping show for serious horse players. Catch Andy and his great lineup of guests every week throughout the month of August on location from the beautiful Saratoga Racecourse. He and his guests are some of the best in the biz. They bring you new insights to making money, and they tell it like it is. I'm 3-5-1 in this race, but the three is very much the one to be. We're going to completely disagree on this race. I absolutely disagree. Spicer, especially at one to two. And it's anything but the same old horse racing show. This is a nine horse field, but really there are seven donkeys and two zebras. Playing to win with Andy Serling, a show seriously committed to making more money at the game, but with a personality. This is a dunce cap horse for me. If this horse wins next week, I got the dunce cap on. YouBet.com's Playing to Win, presented by the Daily Racing Forum. Look for it the day before big race days, mostly Fridays. Find a complete schedule in the Daily Racing Forum or click on Playing to Win at YouBet.com. You may not know all their names, but you certainly know what they did. 
They helped make this game into what it is today. Now we can do more to help them. The NFL Alumni Association is proud to assist our retired players to help make their lives better today and tomorrow. To learn more, please visit nflalumni.org. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes' work to reduce the rate of premature birth. The numbers have gone down in the past five years, but still, nearly half a million babies are born too soon in the United States each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs to help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. Your internet flagship station for sports. Voice America Sports. All right. You hear the music, you know the show. You listen to Rails. On the Voice America Network, I'm in Phoenix, living like it matters. And I'll tell you what matters and who matters is kickers and punters do matter in the National Football League. And it matters that I got my friend Derek Frost on with me now. Derek, of course, uh, punted in the National Football League for the Cleveland Browns, the Green Bay Packers, and the Washington Redskins. Got his break by the Philadelphia Eagles. You'll never forget your first time, and that was the first time he lined up in a uniform, had the Philadelphia Eagles uniform on. And, uh, of course, the owner of that team was a man by the name of Jeffrey Lurie. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you got a little story you want to share with us about you and uh, and Jeffrey Lurie. Is that right, Derek? Yeah, I mean, coming from a small school in northern Iowa, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, we, we had a nice 1AA program, but you know, nothing compared to you know the bigger-name programs and you know, as far as getting free shoes and you, know, you walk into your first NFL, uh, you know, tr- uh, mini camp and, you know, fairly brand new facility there in, in Philly. And I mean, everything's first class. And so I'm in the locker room and keep in mind, I am the competing punter. You know, there's two guys in, in training camp here. So I'm the lowest man on the totem pole. I mean, I am out of all the guys in there. I'm the least important probably. And who comes up to me but Jeff Warren? I don't know him. I mean, I don't know who this guy is. Right. He comes up to me, shakes my hand. You know, I just wanted to thank you for choosing us, is what he told me. And so I had nine teams. I had nine free agent offers. And um, at the time, I didn't know what to think. But as I had experienced, you know, multiple teams, uh, it, it, it was, you know, really showed me something. That here's a guy who, you know, knows where, I'm, where I rank. And, you know, it's pretty much at the bottom. And, he really uh, sees everyone kind of in the same light, and that was uh, that was an interesting experience for me, regardless of of the time that I was there. To me, that that meant something. So. No, that uh, that that means a lot because uh, I've always said when I when I talk to young men who are trying to, uh, you know, they got their eye on the prize and they've got an interest in playing, you know, college football and perhaps maybe making it to playing on on Sundays. I've always said to them, particularly when you leave high school and you go into a program, a Division One program like I was blessed to, and even a smaller school like the one you went to, you, what you got to do is you got to find a way that when they're in meetings at, at night that somebody knows your name. I know Beyonce, my daughter used to always sing this song that Beyonce had, you know, 
say my name, say my name or whatever. You want those people to know your name, that you got to do something and it's got to be something positive that they, oh, who's that guy? Who's that guy number? Whatever he is. What's his name? Who is he? Who is he? You want them to know who you are. And there was obviously something that you did that Jeffrey Lurie took the time out to find out that, hey, man, this guy had nine different offers. And I don't know if you told him that or if, you know, I, 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 many times I don't know how much information they share with each other because, uh, you know, there's not supposed to share all that information. There are some boundaries of which you and I know they, they cross. But but that is that that's the kind of person Jeffrey is. I had an experience with Jeffrey Lloyd when he first came to the Philadelphia Eagles. I was there. I wasn't playing. I had retired, but uh, I was in business for myself, and and uh, I had I was in a microbrewery business. And Jeffrey was having a party uh, to kind of um, say hello to the city, if he if you will. And it, so it was at the it was at City Hall, and it was uh, outdoor, and uh, we set up a nice little outdoor um, venue there, and. Uh, Red Bell was the uh, product of which uh, I was uh, one of the owners and founders, and and he asked, he called me and uh, invited me to uh, the event and wanted us to supply the product. So, uh, I, I man, I have all kind of respect for Jeffrey Laurie. I think he's done a tremendous job with that franchise. Um, as you mentioned, they went to the Super Bowl. What what was your first year there in the city? Well, what year that you spent a couple? Uh, it practice. was 2003. Yeah, 2003, yeah. And, and Jeffrey, I mean, he bought a team. that When he bought it, he bought it, for, I think he bought it for $185 million. And, and probably uh, Norman Brayman had the team probably 10 years uh, prior to that. And, uh, and then Jeffrey Laura, you know, probably 10 years later is worth a billion dollars, you know. And uh, although he and his family, he and his wife have separated from each other, they've, they've held that uh, organization together. That franchise is still one of the marquee franchises in the National Football League, and I have all kind of respect for him. I, it appears that uh, he and uh, uh, the gentleman that was working there with him, uh, who I think did an outstanding job as a general manager, uh, who has since moved on to the Cleveland Browns, and I just can't think of his name at the time, but uh, probably was a person that signed you. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he, he did an outstanding job with them. But but let me let me just ask you a couple things going forward. Really, I mean, we're talking about kickers, we're talking about punters, but but we're talking about the National Football League. You got a, a group of young men that are going to their lives are going to change. I don't care if they're a free agent or if they're uh, a first-round draft pick, uh, or if they're the last, uh, what they call them, Mr. Irrelevant, which is very relevant. Uh, these are young men that the minimum salary I think that they can make now is close to uh, four hundred, maybe $500,000 a year. Their life is going to change. Uh, I obviously played, you know, before you did. Uh, how do you think the young men nowadays are looking at football as, as a career? Is it something that they're still striving to do? Is it, is it as important to them as it was to a generation of people like myself who played or has a game uh, which we know is a very violent game? And I, I, I'm going to take credit for being one of those who caused it to become so violent because people want to Im- imitate and emulate what they see on TV. And so the game is so violent now. Is the passion for the game what it was, you know, 20 years ago, you know, where guys just, man, they really just want to play pro football. They're willing to do whatever it takes to play pro football. Or is it just something that, you know, if I make it, I make it. If I don't, I don't. Yeah, I, uh, you know, my, my knowledge of that is, is, is pretty good, um, specifically really with some of the, uh, the, the previous generation of players because I am on the board of the NFLPA and I deal with a lot of gentlemen that, that played, uh, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30, some of them <laughs> almost 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, you know, my understanding is those guys, 
you know, had jobs, a lot of them, and uh, other jobs. And, you know, they, they loved football, and they went through a lot. And But most of the guys, you know, that I've talked to, you know, they had other careers in mind right away. And I don't think you get that with guys today. I think that that's kind of where guys are being trying to be taught now. Hey, you know, why don't you take an internship in the offseason? Why don't you, uh, you know, think about what you want to do? And there's been programs put in place. I think we've been a little bit late um, to getting those, un, you know, laid out for guys. But, yeah, the money is better. Um, but, again, the rates on, you know, financial success is what I call long-term financial success are no different. No one's moved the dial. And the reason, my, in my opinion, this is, you know, as you know, I do this for a living now, is managing, you know, wealth for guys and protecting money. I saw it firsthand. I mean, I saw, you know, the disasters happen to guys firsthand. And um, it's a psychology is really what it is. Um, and it's, it's getting guys to understand, number one, that this is a temporary career, if, 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 if you would even call it a career. But number two, that this is a limited wealth window. And showing people on paper is a powerful thing. And that's really what, a lot of guys just need it to say, look, you know, show them guys a real plan that this is what happens when you go from making 400, 500, a million dollars a year and you're spending X amount. And then in five or 10 years, you go to making zero, right? And all of a sudden you're still spending a hundred, 200,000 a year. And how does that work out and run the real numbers and really give guys a game plan um, for long-term success that they can follow because that's what they're used to doing. In fact, most of the studies that, you know, we've looked at, on the investment side and then on the business side after uh, football is the franchise guys, the guys that get into franchising do very well because it's typically a model that's already been established and they can follow it. And their guys are used to being, you know, told what to do. They're used to being, Hey, be here at eight o'clock for a meeting, you know, and, and if you're not there, you lose money. So it's same, very similar to franchising. You, you don't follow the schedule. You don't follow the recipe that, you know, the, the, the larger firm built out, you know, you don't do well. So there are things that um, I think are somewhat similar in regard, but I think most guys are out there, um, you know, most of the guys are out there. They love the game. I think at times the money can water down um, drive, and I think owners know that. But, um, and you see that sometimes. But at the end of the day, uh, we also know a lot more about what football does to your body. And if you give a guy 10, 20, or 30 million, his incentive to do what he does is not as is not as great, and that's that's not a knock on any individual. That's just who we are as humans. So um, there's there's uh, you know I look at some of the rare individuals that I would say, hey, you could pay this guy a dollar or a hundred million dollars, and, and and you get the same result. And I look at a guy like London Fletcher. Um, you know, he's a guy that I watched in St. Louis when I went to college, and then actually got to play with with the Redskins, and you know. I think for a linebacker, he may have set the record for consecutive games. He just retired this year. And that's a guy that, I mean, his his level of play never changed. It was always the same, and it was always at an insanely high level. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of guys that are like that, but I do think there's a lot of guys that are um, that are, uh, playing their butt off. I also think there are some guys, unfortunately, that don't think there's anything else out there for them. And that's part of the education process. That's part of showing them and exposing them to things while they're still playing um, so they can, you know, find something that they realize, hey, I might do this for five years if I'm lucky, maybe 10 or 15 if I'm really lucky. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And money's not always the important thing, but it's how do I get value? How do I replace um, this feeling of, of, of accomplishment that's so high in pro sports? 
And um, every guy goes through that. It's a matter of how you handle it. But I think those are the things that guys need to focus in on um, while they're playing. What are some of the things that if you were to look at yourself now and say, I wish I knew then what I know now as it relates to the transition, what would some of those things be that you would acknowledge? You know, I would, I would say that understanding that what you do is so rare and for you to be in a position like this ever again is probably not going to happen, but that doesn't mean it's better or worse. We get into a we I think guys get into the situation where they say, you know what? Football was really good and I really liked it. And what I'm doing now, I just, I don't think it's as good. You know, like we, we, we talk in those terms for me, when I got away from the game, I got right into this industry. But I'll tell you, I didn't feel the way I do now about what I do because I was having success, but I didn't feel great about it. I changed, so I looked at what I was doing. I changed the way I did it slightly. My approach did business a little differently, but I also started saying, look, I'm not going to play football anymore. And the feelings and emotions and things that I did related to that are not going to come back. That doesn't mean that they're not as valuable, but it's a different season of life. And everyone goes through these seasons of life. And if you don't see things that way, you're always going to look for something to try to replace it with. And I think guys do that. I think they do it financially with their money. Um, I think they do that with the fame. For me, it was a little easier. No one ever knew who I was. I could walk into any restaurant and, you know, I've almost never noticed anywhere. And I made good money, but I didn't, you know, make life-altering money where I'm never going to have to work again and things like that where people think that that's a great scenario. But I, I know some guys that have that kind of money. And I'll tell you, they are looking for something of what to do. Where do I create value again for my family and as a man, right? Um, and those are things that take time. So, you know, there are programs that have been un- unveiled. And I said we're a little late to the game, but they are out there now with some of the stuff with the NFLPA. They've unrolled some things with the NFL. We're getting guys exposure to possibilities at an earlier age in the earlier part of their career and helping them find out, hey, is this a good fit for me? What, 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 am I, what do I get out of this? How do I feel doing this type of job? And those are the things that guys need to expose themselves to because a lot of them, you know, you look at, you look at your friends that didn't play football, right? They didn't take their first job on the street, and now they're doing that job for 30 years. That, that's very rare. Most guys go from job to job to job, and it might take them until they're 28 or 30 to find the real career for them. Well, by the time you're that age in football, you're, you know, you've got a wife maybe and some kids and uh, a house, and starting at zero at that point in time becomes insanely stressful. Yeah, when I I look at that and I I think about that, I I think that's the emotional capital, if you will, that I think sometimes players, what they do is they kind of devalue it because many times the emotional capital that they have, it's when they share with other people is where they get a return on their investment. The the emotional capital, because that's what you do when you're out on the football field and you do something that's, that's good for your team the fans appreciate you and they show your appreciation. They show their appreciation for you. So when you're out someplace, even though, you know, you're not supposed to walk in and say, hi, here I am. I'm Derek Frost, former kicker of the National Football, punter in the National Football League. 
But you know, there there are times when you're with some, and it's maybe it's an appearance, or or maybe it's you've been asked to speak uh, on on a course of financial literacy or or career transition. But there is some emotional capital that you bring to that environment where you're different than the average person who may work for some other investment firm, but doesn't have those three letters behind his name of a National Football League player. Those three NFL that that NFL that goes along with it. So I, I think if and I think you guys are doing some of those things. If I, am I right to try to support players uh, in, as it relates to emotional capital, even just being in an environment with other players? Uh, there's some emotional capital. That's the camaraderie of the locker room of which they miss. Are some of those things going on as well? Yeah, there, there are a host of programs right now um, for guys, you know, especially um, the younger guys, getting them acclimated to these things. We, we even have some personality assessment stuff that we're doing with people if they, you know, if they choose to go through the program where it really just um, shows them what fields they may be best in based on their personality Things like that that are going on. Unfortunately, you know, for the older generation of guys, it, it wasn't available, and there's a gap in there where where there's not any coverage, um, and that and that's difficult. But we, you know, we're, we are on the right page now. It's just you know, I think that we were a little bit late to the game there. Yeah, but and like it, with everything, um, it's tough to be. You know, it's tough to be overly proactive. I mean, I think, like you said, I think most of the older generation of players had a different view of of the temporariness of the, of the, of the profession. I don't think the money was as good. And I think a lot of guys had careers and because nowadays you just don't have that. It creates a bigger deficit um, at a later age. So, you know, getting guys to understand, and you know, I work, I, the guys I had, I work with them on that to, you know, help them understand that um, this isn't, you know, the only thing in life for you, you know, we're all created for a specific reason. And, uh, this is where, you know, you're supposed to be right now, and then there'll be a time where you're supposed to be somewhere else. But that doesn't mean it's worse um, or better. It's different. Yeah, and, and I, I, I when we have to view things in that, in that microscope, um, that's the only way to really move on and, and mentally. Then it's, the, then it's the, 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 the challenge of what do I, you know, what do I find as a job? What do I want to do? And that really needs to start well before a guy stops playing. Yeah, and let me ask you something. Speaking of that, you know, what needs to take place before a guy stops playing? Uh, how much of your programs that are being rolled out now actually gets gives you the opportunity to be in front of those young men before their careers are ending? Are you doing anything at the college level? Or are you doing anything at the high school level? I know at the Pop Warner level, you got the heads up program where you're trying to teach young men not to use their heads when they tackle. So, what about that? That that development as a as a person to get them ready for life outside of sports are you reaching down that far back to those young people in in pop warner and in junior high school and high school and colleges or is it just for players that are actively involved in the league in terms of starting them out in terms of career transition uh, yeah, I think the, the program that the NFLPA has been working on, I, like, again, I say, you know, we've, we've, we've come a long way. We still have a long way to go. I think the bar was very low, um, but, but we still got a long way to go. Everyone that looks at these issues knows that it should be addressed at the college level. There are issues with that. There are compliance issues. There are NCAA issues um, that make it difficult. Uh, it also becomes extremely costly if you have a program where you have to, you know, hit every single college, you know, let's say it's a seminar, all of those things are difficult. Um, some of the things that 
have, I think, improved this is, you know, the NFLPA now has a, has a bowl game, or at least they get some exposure to some guys early and you know, talk about the business of football, um, uh, you know, r- right away. They, you know, the, the education program that they do uh, for guys, you know, unfortunately only hits the draftable players, and it's only a two-day program. Guys need um, consistent follow-up, and I think we're going that direction. I think it's just been a little slow. Um, but I think that's where we need to go. We have to get consistent follow-up with guys. We have to, um, you know, have meetings. We have, you know, usually they, they come in once or twice a year to a team. Um, and there is some mandated education, but a lot of who does the education isn't mandated. And, and I'd like to see a, an across-the-board um, mandated program that's the same for every team. I'd like to see that created. But, you know, you're not going to get everybody. You're not going to save every guy, but in, increase the, the probability of success. Because I look at this, this business and I say, gosh, I was very fortunate. I, I didn't have to go through the mental and physical, you know, beating. And I say mental because it's, it's mental to have to show up every day to practice and to smash into guys. Because if you don't want to do it, it's the people are going to know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's really mental. And, and I didn't have to go through some of that stuff, but to see guys go through it and to see some of the older generations of what they go through now with health issues and to know that, you know, approximately only 17 to 20% of these guys are in good shape when they're done. That's the crux of why I do what I do now. And I run um, in my own asset protection investment company is that's really where I've channeled my focus is, um, helping guys understand this process and, and increasing their probability of success. I look at that and say, gosh, if only 20% of guys are doing this the right way, I mean, there's got to be a way to improve it. And that's what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing until, you know, I guess I'm called to do something else if I am. But um, there's a big deficit there. And uh, we need a lot of people on the same page to fix it. And uh, talking about it's good, but also these programs are great. But you also got to get guys to listen. So, and Derek, let me ask you, everybody. So, so if somebody you get as many as you can. If somebody needs your services, and again, your services that you provide for players, both current and former, is is wealth, is wealth management. Am I correct in that? Yeah, but I, I, what we like to do is phrase it a little differently. We like to say what we do is is a little bit backwards. And what I mean by that is. We don't talk about investments or, or doing things with people's money until we talk about how to protect their money first. And what I mean by that is making sure that they're not exposed to any types of unknown liability or getting ripped off from other people, uh, minimizing certain types of taxes, specifically uh, income taxes, because, you know, that's a big deal now, um, but also estate taxes. I mean, guys... You know, football. Some football players live very long, and some don't. But most, a lot of guys have shown that they're unprepared um, for the unknown. And unfortunately, families are the ones that have to deal with that. So is there a- we make sure we we make sure that these are Loctite situations for guys, and, and we work with that part of the the planning first. Then we move on to um, you know making sure that we craft a plan for them that says, look, you're going to save this much money every year. Follow the plan. And this is what happens at the end. This is your chance of developing income for the rest of your life, you know, based on when you're done playing and how much money you make and what you want to spend in retirement. Okay, Derek, I got about 20 seconds, man. I need you to make sure you let everybody know the name of your company and an email address where they can visit your website and even a number where they can call you. So so my company is Profusion Financial, Profusion Financial, and you can email me at dfrost, as in Derek Frost, at Profusion 
profusion-financial.com. You can check us out on the web at profusion-financial.com as well. Um, or you can Google it. It'll come right up. Well, Derek, listen, I appreciate everything that you've said, everything that you're doing. I promise you I'll have you back on the show again because we got a lot more that we can talk about. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hope you're staying warm over there on the East Coast. I believe you are in Virginia right now because it's, it's pretty hot out here in Arizona. <laughs> but uh, It's 40, so the snow's melting. That's all I care about. <laughs> oh, thank God. Thank God. All right. Hey, thanks so much again. That was my friend, Derek Frost, former punter in the National Football League, doing some good things with the NFLPA, working with uh, retired players. So, Again, I'm thanking you all for joining the show. You can catch me again next week, same time, same place. But for now, I'll see you next time, which will be the best time. Thank you for spending this hour with Ray Ellis Sports. We hope that you've enjoyed today's conversation. For more information and to write Ray, visit RayEllisSports.com. That's RayEllisSports.com. Be sure to join us again next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, right here on the Voice America Sports Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.